Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. One thing that we intervened on very quickly because we were at the table for like how should we structure the deal was to do something that was quite counterintuitive, I think, and very controversial, which was to say, let's essentially value all of our current technology assets at near zero and make them part of the deal. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. A merger and acquisition can be a major disruption for engineering orgs. So how can you strategically approach deal structuring in a way that benefits instead of distracts? Melody Hildebrand joins us to share her experience representing the technology organization during the biggest deal in entertainment history. Melody is the Executive Vice President of Engineering and Chief Information Security Officer at Fox Corporation and COO of Fox subsidiary Blockchain Creative Labs. Previously, she ran product and engineering for all digital experiences across web, mobile, and living room applications within the Fox brands, notably leading the platform architecture to stream Super Bowl 2020, the story of which she shared with us during our 2020 virtual summit. Before 21st Century Fox, she was an executive vice president of Palantir Technologies. Prior to that, she consulted to U.S. and international governments with Booz Allen Hamilton, where she designed military and strategy war games. This conversation was such a special behind-the-scenes look at a process that many of us may only really ever experience firsthand maybe once, if that. We covered how to strategically structure your TSA or transfer service agreement to actually accelerate your tech roadmap, what it's like to represent the technology organization during M&A negotiations, how to gain executive buy-in on engineering initiatives, especially when the approach is non-intuitive, and how this event has continued to accelerate innovation and productivity at Fox today. Enjoy our conversation with Melody Hildebrandt. Melody, first off, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. How are you doing today? What's going on? You know, it's good to be here. Glad it's Friday. Yeah, (laughs) feeling good. Absolutely. Well, we are here to talk about how an M&A event can be used as an accelerating force for your technology adoption or your technology and your organization. You have so many interesting stories around this space. One of the stories we're going to talk about is 21st Century and Fox and Disney and the deal there and how it spun out Fox Corporation. I think the big thing here that has Jerry and I most excited is most folks don't really get access or exposure to how those types of events work from a technology leader perspective, let alone like how to actually leverage that in a way that accelerates your tech transformation. There was a a blog post you released. uh, One of the quotes was, a transactional deal when structured well can pour jet fuel on your technology transformation plans. So my main question really is how? Like, how the heck does that happen? I was wondering maybe if we could start with the story behind this deal. And so can you bring us in a little bit to what happened and how did that quote unquote pour jet fuel on your technology plans? Yeah, so this was, you know, the the 21st Century Fox Disney deal was a mega deal, the biggest deal in entertainment history, I think at the time, $72 billion deal in 2017. And the the underlying context for it was, I think something we're all observing right now in the streaming wars and the different direct-to-consumer applications that, you know, all the major media companies are releasing. And Fox leadership kind of looked at the the space and I think had a strong early view, there's going to be very few winners in this space. And the winners are going to be the organizations with the largest bulk. It's a game of having a massive content library that 
is compelling enough to get the average consumer to pay a monthly subscription to and want to maintain that subscription over time. And Netflix will likely be a winner. Disney was very well positioned to be a winner. And there might be one more between Paramount Plus, between Peacock, which didn't even exist at the time and others. So I think, you know, the leadership was a little early to see if okay, there's a, there's a war happening and we are not particularly well set up to win this war. Like we could go after it. And we had a play to be in the streaming wars, um, but it really wasn't obvious that it played to our strengths. It wasn't clear that, you know, pouring billions and billions of dollars in content acquisition was going to be a winning strategy. And that's what it would have taken. The view was, let's actually try to re-envision a new tech company, I should say, entirely new media company, and, you know, take advantage of the opportunity that all of these organizations are looking to bulk up. It was just a, a massive opportunity to sell a huge number of assets at a massive premium. So, you know, Disney purchased a large number of the Fox sales, particularly all the entertainment properties, those National Geographic, the 20th Century Film Studio, the television studio, and 10 other properties, all of our international properties, and acquired that for $70 billion. That allowed Fox then to spin off a new company, Fox Corporation, which I chose to join, which you know, had a very different mission and was very focused on live sports, live news, live entertainment. And we saw that as a differentiated offering that would allow us to be nimble and like absolutely crush and be the leader in that space versus fighting for slot number three in the other war. One of the other quotes in this blog post that really, to me, stood out as an extraordinary result was you'd mentioned, we'd estimate that we completed at least five years of work within a two-year time frame, and that put you in this position to be nimble and to have a great future. Can you share a little bit more about what was that work that was accelerated? Because to me, to fast forward a five-year time horizon for your technology roadmap to two plus years is crazy. Can you tell us a little more about what were some of those projects, the things that got zoomed up? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing what can happen when you really actually have an immovable timeline, right? And there's a, a, a deadline that cannot be shifted. I mean, in the case of our deal, you need know, a two-year transition service agreement, TSA, this is common in every M&A transaction. They're usually quite unstrategic. They're basically, let's give ourselves a little buffer so we can move the business over. And generally, it's like a lift and shift you know, project, but then whoever's the acquiring company has to integrate the previous assets and whoever's the other company has to figure out how to like detangle all dependencies from those assets. And so, you know, we had a two-year TSA and we had the option once to extend by three months. So that is a hard timeline. (laughs) And that really focuses effort in a very significant way. So our strategy on this was that we looked at our technology assets and realized we we had these projects in place. We knew, for example, that we were running massive data center footprints. I mean, we're in the media delivery business. We're doing 4K and coding and distribution. We're running satellites all over the world, you know, we have satellite distribution facilities, massive data centers, massive broadcast facilities. And, you know, these are, a lot of these technologies are kind of, we're behind the, say, behind the times on cloud, <laughs> let's um, putting it nicely. And so we knew we wanted to move to a cloud distribution facility, but no one had done that before in broadcast. No one had figured out how do you do 4K distribution in the cloud, for example. This was kind of on the roadmap. We knew we wanted to get there, but we didn't really didn't have line of sight on how to get there. That's one example. You know, we knew we were running, for example, we were running satellites out of Los Angeles, our movie lot here, which is you know, where I'm headquartered. And running satellites in LA is a pretty bad idea, actually, satellite distribution. There's a lot of earthquake risk. There's a lot of interference from LAX. So it's really not great to run huge antennas to deliver the Super Bowl out of LA, where you have very little room for failure. So we knew that we needed to have a different facility. There were certain things that we kind of knew we needed to do. And then there's a lot of like really unsexy things. I really wanted to get like a zero trust architecture. That is really hard to do if you have nine different email systems, right? And that was kind of the reality of what it was like to be in 21st Century Fox. I mean, we had huge brands that were all in this holding company. So Fox News, Star India, National Geographic, 20th Century Film. Some of these companies are 100 years old. You know, some of them are newer, but all of them had their own infrastructure. And we were in this process and we had actually made a lot of progress, both like integrating and moving to best in class stuff. We had essentially done the easy stuff. But there was just, I mean, a huge numbers of projects that we were just managing for ERP and finance and all this stuff. It's really unsexy, but 
if you're trying to like do zero trust or you're trying to have, you know, a comprehensive cybersecurity view, or you just want like efficiency in what you're delivering. It's just a lot of overhead. Those were essentially all the things that were on the list. And we're like, all right, we're just like burning through this stuff with this view to be a cloud native company and a view to be, you know, largely SaaS driven and to kill all our data centers. But we thought that was going to take five years, like optimistically, because so often, you know, those kinds of transformations just get interrupted by, oh, well, suddenly the business wants to stand up something and they need the tech team to spin up a new website and a new infrastructure, a new platform. And so those things always get deprioritized. And we essentially, through the way we structured the deal, made it so that they could not be deprioritized. Like we could not in two years have zero ERP system. We could not in two years, like not have an email gateway solution for the company. So that's what essentially allowed us to like focus and keep the team just laser focused on those priorities for two years so that we could actually run the business on the new infrastructure when the time came. It makes me wonder if there's ways to like create those forcing functions when you don't have that hard deadline. It just makes me wonder if, if there's a way to in- introduce those types of timelines because I feel like oftentimes like timelines are so much so self-assigned. And so this was like such a forcing function to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, the easiest thing to do is like you actually just say a contract's ending. I mean, that's essentially what this was. It was to say, yeah. actually, all this technology is going over there. They're going to provide a service back to us. And that service agreement's two years. Mm-hmm. You know, so you could do, I actually did something similar recently on another pro- project where we had a technology in place. I'm like, I am over this technology. And every six months, it's, oh, well, we haven't quite gotten, I'm like, this project, I'm changing the term of the contract. I'm not signing another three-year deal at renewal. We're signing a one-year deal. you got one year to make it happen. So I think there is a way to kind of, I don't think you can do it at the scale that we did it without, you know, some highly catalyzing event. Like in two years, if you do not figure this out, like we will not be able to distribute the Super Bowl, a very core business function for us. Um, but I think on the, on the edges, you can do it. I think this is a really good learning for all and your leaders to uh, how you heard your team to get something massive or critical accomplished in an effective manner. Because I experienced personally that by having an externally committed timeline that effectively boosts the productivity of the team very obviously. I think people are smart that having arbitrary deadline that and versus having a real deadline that if you don't deliver, then there's going to be externally visible outcome. I think psychologically, that makes a huge difference. Jerry, quick aside here. It reminds me of when we were building the platform for our conference last year. So we built our own platform to, to host our event, host our community. And the deadline was the event. It was like, this needs to be live and it needs to be working. <laughs> and yeah, it's announced. We're, we're in the design. So we got to do it. Eventually it happened. And the team just felt really proud. But I don't think that's going to happen if we don't have that forcing function. Yeah, I think there, there is something about not having a backup plan that um, actually aligns incentives <laughs> and aligns effort. It was just so galvanizing for the team too. I mean, again, in this case, it's like everyone got to work actually in the technologies they always wanted to work on, right? So the whole thing was very motivating because it wasn't like, oh, well, you have two years to like make this horrible thing not break again. Like these, were, these were teams that were maintaining systems that really should have been end of life in some cases. I think some of the teams were so excited to be able to jettison all that and work on all the newest technologies. And what we did with Amazon for that was like, you know, we were partnering with Amazon. It was the first time they had ever worked with a media company to really solve this distribution quality challenge at scale, you know? And so I think that the, there is something galvanizing too, I think, or that helps to get to the goal basically is to push the teams to all work in the technologies they've always wanted to work in and to shed them from a lot of the like the cruft that they had been, you know, wasting their time with. I wanted to talk about your role as representing the technology organization at the M&A conversation and how you strategically approached the TSA, because to me, that seems like an, an under leveraged tool to really accelerate your tech innovation. Can you just share a little bit more about, you know, what was your role as the tech executive and the representative of the tech organization? And how did that relate to the TSA structuring 
I think one thing at Fox that's cool is that you know, our CTO, my boss, Paul Cheeseboro, you know, is very much in the top leadership team. And the decision to sell to Disney, like he was in that discussion, right? So we knew from the very beginning when this deal was going to happen, so we could be prepared to help structure the deal in a way that was strategic. I think often technology orgs, like they learn about something and make it happen. And one thing that we intervened on very quickly because we were at the table for like, how should we structure the deal was to do something that was quite counterintuitive, I think, and very controversial, which was to say, let's essentially value all of our current technology assets at near zero Mm -hmm. and make them part of the deal. You know, because we weren't going to be able to change the deal price. Like the price was, you know, (laughs) Iger Murdoch, right? Okay. So that was kind of, that was defined, but what was in the deal you know, it's like what the teams then were kind of tasked with figuring out. So we weren't going to be able to say, oh, we think our broadcast facility, like, you know, we invested at least $600 million in capital over the last three years. It's probably about the right number. We want you to pay for that. Like that wasn't going to be a thing, right? It was like, no, you can, you take it. So by default, we said, well, you're buying the business, really you're buying 70% of the business. So we're going to by default, put all the technology into that. And then we're going to have the right to claw stuff back. So, you know, we made the determination, for example, like at the time I was also running our streaming team, engineering team. We said, actually, we've been working for the last year on a brand new from scratch platform rebuild of our entire streaming architecture. That is actually exactly what we want to be in for the future. So we're going to take that back so we can keep building on it. Right. But you are going to take our core broadcast facility and then you're going to provide that back to us as a service under the TSA. This was hard, I mean, mainly because like, if you're a technology person who's been working at Fox for 20 years, it's like, I know, it seems kind of like a gut punch. Oh, I've been working on this for 20 years, and essentially, this is now, you're giving all my work away for free. Like, oh. that was, I think, very hard for some people to internalize. But it sounds like the the free part was more of just, like, how it all kind of added up and rolled right. up to the beat. That's, that's, that's like the narrative you could tell yourself if you were thinking yeah. about it unstrategically, totally. in my view. You know, it was like, oh, like, I've been working on this forever and you've given it away. But our view was if we, by default, put stuff into the deal, so we by default we're giving it to you, then we peel back the things that will actually accelerate our ability to deliver the future state architecture, then we essentially have the green field to go out and build that versus what is the reality in a large company like I was often, which you're working in parallel. And then you always have to have these like integration points. So it's like, oh, well, let's cut over this part of the capability. Something inevitably goes wrong. There's an integration challenge. It sets you back two months, right? And so we got basically got rid of all those integration challenges. And because otherwise it'd be quite... I've never seen a company just like actually build a whole parallel infrastructure for two years and then flip a switch. I mean, that, that really doesn't happen. That's effectively what we were able to do. So that was the, like, like it was really my boss, I think the CTO who had the vision for this. And then I was so excited. I advocated for exactly how to do it so much because it's so accelerated zero trust. I was yeah. like, Oh, we're giving you the network. I mean, they manage our network like on the lot for two years. Like, and so we could rebuild our entire new network. We had a construction project to do in two years, a 400,000 square foot ground up build of a building in Phoenix and had to hire 200 people from scratch because we had never had a presence in Phoenix before or Tempe. So that was the risky thing to do. We really had to put our neck on the line and say, we can do this, right? Because of course the, the risk would be like, we actually can't do it. And then in two years, the lights go off. And there's no alternative. I mean, the stakes were pretty high to actually be able to deliver. I think it was so cool to see how at the very beginning, the technology organization was brought in as let's make this a huge strategic opportunity for us and, and set it up in the right way. What are the questions that you asked at the beginning to identify the right strategy? Or, or how did you all kind of formulate the, the right approach here? I mean, some of it was actually just, I think, gr- trying to ground the conversation a little bit, which is, well... Some of it is, well, where do we want to, this is a huge moment. So like, at, a, at a minimum, it's going to force a ton of change. The new company was essentially 40% the size of the previous company. Mm-hmm. So we need to make personnel decisions, right? So the core question is, what's the team we want to have in the future? Again, by default, we put everyone into Disney and then pulled people out. That's also kind of hard to stomach, right? For some yeah. people. Oh my gosh. Some of these, things, well, there's two things, like these macro questions. Like what is the team we want for the future? What do we think? And what are the skills we think we are going to need 
to deliver, to be able to continue to innovate the pace we want to through the future. And there might be a different set of skill sets than we were looking for five years ago, 10 years ago. We had some employees who've been there for 25 years at Fox. So those are kind of the high level strategic things. And then it was like grounding it and like, well, we have the Super Bowl next year, the biggest moment in live television ever, always. It always sets records, it always breaks all previous television records. So like, how would we do this? Are we willing to take the risk of someone else having such a large responsibility? But of course, the alternative is, well, if, if they buy National Geographic, we're never working on National Geographic again. National Geographic is totally unstrategic to Fox. But I'm spending my time as a technology leader helping National Geographic be successful for two years. But that means I'm not going to be able to spend time on what the future of Fox is. That was like the galvanizing moment. It's like, what is the key leadership going to be spending its time doing? And if we hold back our technology, then we're going to have to service the businesses they bought because you can't just flip it over day one. Someone has to operate that technology. So either we're operating it or you're operating it. And it was seen as very unstrategic for the people we were saying, all right, these are the people we want to build the future of Fox. Oh, but for two years, they're going to be entirely distracted running businesses for Disney. That was a bad place to be. So it was like, well, those were our options. Either our leadership team and our core team is going to be focused running other people's business. We'll get paid for it. But like our goal is not to be like a service provider. Yeah. We want to make, create our own business or we take the risk. They service us. I mean, they're a real company. Disney is like a huge company. So it was risky, <laughs> right? But it's not like an unknown quantity, right? We knew the technical team over there was extraordinarily competent. They were going to have service level agreements with us that were very strict that we had to design. When we thought about it that way, that I think was kind of the aha moment. There seems to be like this big conversation happening between you and Disney this whole time about who owns what during this two-year period of time. And I was wondering if there were any lessons from those conversations that you learned that might be relevant for engineering leaders like in coming up with the structure between the new entity and the the assets being transferred. Were there any lessons from that conversation or particular moments that went really well that would be a good thing to call out for any engineering leader who maybe is entering into those types of negotiations? Things that went well, interesting, often it was more contentious. But, you know, I think there was mutual respect between the teams, right? We were, as I think, approaching it from that perspective. Okay, we're both like technologists, we both want to be able to deliver the best technology for our respective companies. Let's have an honest conversation about really what the current capabilities are. I think we were extremely honest, both sides. I wasn't trying to like sell them a bunch of junk and say that it, it's something that it's not. I think it's important to be honest in these conversations. This is the size of the team that currently maintains this technology. It's probably going to be what's required in the future, right? So I think one thing that works is like to come from a position of mutual respect. We had these working sessions. We were very detailed, I think very honest about what the current state was. But then to have a few of your like bright lines. I mean, for us, it was extremely clarifying to say, by default, the technology is with you. Right. And anytime they'd say, well, actually, it seems like we don't really know enough about that technology maybe you guys should keep it on. I'm like, hmm, by default, the technology is with you, right? And I could always like come back to that. And that came from the highest levels. So I think that was one thing. Can you have these guiding principles? You're going to approach the conversation honestly. You're going to come from a position of mutual respect. But there's going to be moments where like, you know, each of you kind of want a different outcome around a specific decision. And it's really useful to have these agreed upon principles that by default, we're going to adhere to. And that's what we were able to get through the right advocacy, I think, with the you know top three people at Fox who had our back on all those conversations. And occasionally we had to call them up and say, you need to tell them this was the deal. We're not going to take on this responsibility. By default, it's with them. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community.
the learning can be teased out from a few different angles uh, for new leaders, of course, but also for those that are sort of driving decisions like this as executive or as a CEO. Story-wise, I think this is something people are going to remember. And I think the the dividends from this conversation, the learning will be teased out over time. And when it came across a situation like this, oh, this is something that, that happened. And I can uh, refer back to that for, for some insights. I'm I'm definitely taking as many notes as possible because this is one of those moments where I feel like as an engineering leader, like you don't get that many shots on goal to do this the right way. And so the learning curve seems really steep, high pressure and high intensity. So I wanted to ask you one more question about the deal structuring and, and negotiation for somebody who's never been in that in that room and who's never never had a conversation like that. Is there any recommendations you would give to help somebody prepare for their first M&A type conversation or strategically defining a TSA? Yeah, I think for engineering leadership, I think really being able to paint a picture of the future and what that can enable is what gets, I think, the business excited to be willing to go to bat for you. I, I think it's fair to say the executive team was not initially on board with this approach or like it initially was risky, hmm. right? And so you have to say like, well, what, what is the reward to taking this risk? Because, you know, it would have worked the other way, right? And it would have been safer. And, and I think that's often the challenge for engineering leadership. Like they're often abstracted away from pain, right? <laughs> Technical pain. And so initially you kind of have to paint the picture of like in two years, here's where we could be you know, if we took this approach. And that is quite compelling, I think. And part of that then, actually, I think probably the slide that won the the battle here was here's our two-year projection of what percent of our technology budget, which is over a billion dollars, what percentage of our technology budget is going to running the business versus growing the business. Hmm. And it was something like 60-40, 60% running. 40% 40% growing. Then we said, we think it's going to be inverted in two years. And it is. And so I think that's the slide that kind of sealed the deal. We really partnered with finance. We had a partner with all the business units to like make these projections real. I mean, yeah. it's a nice thing to say, we're going to flip 60-40, right? Um, but <laughs> it had to be like actually grounded in real data. Like what are teams spending time on? You know, we have a team over a thousand technologists. What are they spending their time on today? How many people are like literally running the data centers versus coding our software for streaming? That I think is painting the future and then speaking then in a language that the business can care about because they don't really care about, honestly, like, oh, like we have five engineers who have a really brutal job, like having to maintain this like old ERP system, you know, I like, I don't really care. <laughs> so you have to paint it in business terms. So I think that's probably my, that'd probably be the biggest thing. It's like, what is the future? And then how do you translate that to actual business results? Yeah, and then a side insight I get from that is that to think about those plans before you're in position, you have to think about it, right? You mentioned that the team is running fine. Right, you can sustain the the load and and can continue to grow the business, but that's probably the better time or best time to think about future plans versus your better situation. The house on fire, that's too late. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like we had to come up with this vision out of nowhere. It wasn't like, oh, like we've never thought about where we're going to be in five years. I think Paul and I, myself, like Paul in particular, my boss, like we really had a set of where we wanted to be. Like we we had that vision, you know, technically. And then it was like suddenly the scramble to be like, okay, let's make it real. Let's ground it in the business outcome today. But it wasn't like coming up with the strategy, as you think, say, Jerry, like from scratch. Not that you should always be preparing for an M&A event, but I think being able to, you know, fall back on like, you know, a future vision that is already kind of like an orienting goal for the team and then saying we're going to dramatically shorten our delivery time versus we're going to pitch you on a future we've never told you about before that we promise we can deliver you in two years that we just came up with yesterday. That's harder. I think that would be a harder sell. But a lot of things we had talked about, like in terms of what we think we can deliver to switch the business, are concepts that the executive team had already heard. So it's always this is an acceleration. This is not like magic. This is also part of the angle for how a new leader at a certain level that you got to find opportunity to make an impact yourself. You're not told to do something. You're too senior to do that. And this is a good example that now, even though things are good, but you can make massive impact by being proactive, by exercise strategic thinking, and then come up with ideas that 
will dramatically accelerate the the technology transformation. You know, you know, with it probably nobody anticipated. I totally agree. Just even like selfishly, it, it actually allows the tech team to be thinking about the next thing, not thinking about the past, right? So like from the moment that, you know, we basically had the plan in place, we were always thinking to the future, even just having your brain space to be able to think about, well, what's the next big thing? Like that that fits into like what I'm working on now. I'm working on something very different than I was at the time of the transaction that I didn't even anticipate then. But because I wasn't forced to be running all this like stuff over here, it gave me the brain space to be able to even see that future. And I think it's, it's meaningful for the business and it's meaningful to be able to have your tech leadership being able to think about the future of the business, not just, as you say, Jerry, like kind of like doing marching orders or like taking commands or something about how to just make a thing happen. That's that, because that's easy. I have personal process questions about you, Melody, here, because communicating in a visionary way about the strategic future of a technology organization to me is like an amazing skill that not everybody knows how to do well. Do you have any recommended recommended ways to learn how to communicate about the technology organization to the business in an effective way? Like, is there a book to read, people to follow? <laughs> where, where do you go to, to acquire the language skill there? I'm totally with you. This is, I think, an underrated engineering leadership skill that is, I think, easy to dismiss as kind of like soft skills or like, oh, I'm no good at that. But like, I think you really put a ceiling on yourself if you say like, oh, I'm I'm so technical. Like, I don't need to have those soft skills or something. I think it's absolutely key to my ability to get things done. Totally. But the thing is here is this is such a great story of showing the difference that that made because you could be stuck with legacy technology that's impeding the progress of your organization. And this is like a huge macro example of what that would look like. Sorry, continue. I was just like, this is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of it is like actually caring about what the business is about. I mean, understanding what the future of the business what do the business leaders want the future of the business to be? And, and where do they see the future of the business? And like really internalizing that and realizing it's your job to actually really understand that. And then being able, I think in some ways, to talk in language that is the way that these decisions are actually made. I mean, the decisions are made at executive levels, like backed by real data. And it obviously did a lot of research to figure out like, well, how much money does it take to win the streaming wars? You know, these are grounded in facts, right? And he was like, is it worth us to us to spend $5 billion a year on content to maybe win? That's the decision point, right? So similarly, I think, as I mentioned, run the business, grow the business. We actually kind of came up with that framework. It's not like, oh, that was a slide that we pulled mm-hmm. out of another deck, but it is the way that the team thinks about the world a little bit. And so I get a lot of benefits from just being in, and I, I always ask to stick around in meetings that I'm not really um, supposed to be in. And I get a lot of benefit from being in those meetings and seeing other people brief and seeing other people like executives. How does the CEO of Fox Sports brief their business, right? And what resonates? And so I, I learn a lot from seeing how business leaders communicate, you know, about what their business is and how it runs, not only to understand myself, but also to see what really resonates. So for me, it's just like a lot of listening and like outside of like my lane and internalizing that. And I think it's very different company by company. Different leaders obviously respond to different approaches. Mm-hmm. But I think that's been like the first step for me. And then I always, I don't know, I'm like very prepared when I talk to leadership, which is extremely prepared. And then I always basically try to take I look at it and I'm like, what is all the jargon in here? And I remove all the jargon. And I always do like four passes for jargon every time to make sure that I don't use jargon. And is this engineering jargon? Yeah, it's like engineering jargon. And I'm I'm working like blockchain stuff now. And like, that's very hard to avoid jargon. Okay. I was like, because you can also pull out the business lingo too. And lots of jargon. Business lingo is totally cool. (laughs) Drop that in there, you know, all day. But engineering jargon, like I do like four passes to remove it. For engineering leaders that are not in those meetings yet, but they want to, what are the approaches to to do it in a way that that come across in a positive way? The way I started to do that was literally because I was in a meeting and I was briefing a technical thing to a group. And there was a group after me that was basically going to brief to the next group. And I was like, you know, can I stick around this meeting? I'll sit in the back. And they're like, yeah, sure. I sat in the room. I mean, this is a Lachlan Murdoch meeting. So it's like, it took like a little bit of chutzpah to like just ask to stick around. (laughs) And I did. And like, 
literally that has led to me like co-writing this business right they're like oh why were you there again and we started talking and like oh you seem pretty smart and like <laughs> next thing you know like even if like initially you might not have as much to contribute and i'm very comfortable asking to stay in the room i've done that a lot and just, i feel like i could learn if i could just be in the room i won't be disruptive or whatever and then maybe actually i do say something because i think generally you don't want to be totally silent in the rooms because people are like why are you here so you say one smart thing that's it shut your mouth the rest of the time and that's my advice is like ask to stay in meetings that you're not actually invited to. I think this is harder actually to work from home, a lot harder to actually make that kind of thing happen. Yeah, I was realizing that as well as you were mentioning that. That was an incredible deep dive. I didn't expect us to, to go that far. That's amazing. The other personal process question, Melody, do you have a particular process that helps you ideate the future strategic direction of the technology organization? Like, how do you approach that? Are you creating like a specific regimented space? you doing like journal prompts? What's your process there? I write so many Google Docs. I mean, I got Google Docs come to Fox just so I could use Google Docs. I mean, we were like a Microsoft shop. I was like, we need Google Docs. Here. This is how I work. I find it so helpful to write. I just write so much all the time. And I'm always writing docs. And then I'm always just put a comment in my docs. I'm refining. I, I just, I think writing is so clarifying. So I really like to write. And then just in terms of how I spend my time, I am a big believer in like high-low time where I think it's important to be thinking strategically in my role. Like I need to be, you know, putting together frameworks for the team can like filter information. Like my example earlier of like, by default, technology is out. These are like the kinds of filters that I think really can be clarifying for teams to execute against. And then I'm really in the weeds on certain projects where I'm actually seeing like, how does this framework actually work for this project in practice? I think middle management is like absolute death. This might be a weakness of mine, but I just really hate superficially touching lots of things in the quest to make them each like 1% better. I think that's like a total waste of time. So personally, I write a lot and I'm either writing like strategic, like here's what this company should be all about. Here's what I think the technical architecture should be. I'm doing this for mm -hmm. like our blockchain stack right now. So such a big question, right? What chain are we working on? What wallets? What this? What are the features, right? So like I'm writing a ton about like, what is the future technical architecture for us that like meets what we need to do. And then I'm like literally writing technical specs basically for one project. And so I, I, I just do this like high-low thing that works really well for me. I like, really like to be grounded in like actual application. And then I basically get comfortable that I don't know a ton of stuff like in the middle. I don't know exactly how like <laughs> these seven projects are going, but you know, there's like some ways to check in and occasionally they go off the rails and that's like a weakness of this approach, but I still think it's, it works for me. For the low time, can you just give a little bit of commentary about what that looks like? Like when you're getting really in the weeds with the team, seeing how your framework is being implemented to get some feedback there, is that yeah. shadowing a meeting or what does that look like? Oh no, it means like I'm producing all the work product for it. Okay. So, I mean, like right now, for example, you know, I'm working on this, you know, new business within Fox around Web3 and I am personally developing the entire tokenomic strategy for one of our league, like sports league partners we're working with and every piece of utility we're going to offer. I just put together yesterday our entire drop schedule for the next year. I'm like, every time it's like, here's the exact price we're going to release it at. Here's like the utility that's going to be offered. Here's the mechanic we're going to do it for. I literally wrote all that, you know, for feedback, you know, but I did the first draft. That's what I mean by being low. It's like, you do the first draft. You're not just comments, you know, what other people are doing. You're not getting briefed and, you know, contributing early to a project. It's like, you are actually creating the work product for some project for the first time about what it's all about. What's the, the benefit of doing that comparing to uh, being brave and how out of field to take the, the lead and uh, you provide feedback? You know, and, and I would say, I mean, for every project, obviously that would be completely impossible. I mean, some of it is like my passion. I really am excited about this project. Like I think it can be like one of the most transformational web three projects out there. I have a vision for it. And I just want to like see this vision through. I love the fact that I feel that way. Like it's super energizing to me that I can have this vision, that I can actually make it real, that I'm going to meet this chairman of the league, the CEO of the business. And when I talk about it, it's like, I wrote it all. So like, I know it really well. <laughs> so I find that personally quite energizing. There are other projects we're working on where I just like don't even feel that close connection to the, for whatever reason, I'm still, this project still needs to be successful. And we also have like very talented people running it. And so I'm super psyched that those projects are running. I'm like, I totally trust that person to run that project. <laughs> Come to me if you need help. But like by default, I totally I support you. And so I think the some of the advantages, like I personally find it energizing. 
you know, and it gets me like, this is what we're all about. This is why we're here. That's one, one piece of it. But it's also, it, it caused me to like, check certain assumptions that seemed like right in the abstract. But in practice, I'm like, actually, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. This would be really dumb in practice. <laughs> so some of it just like gut checks. And the final thing I'll say is I think back to my time at Palantir and I spent eight years at Palantir and I did a ton of roles. But there was one period of Palantir where I was basically in this clear middle management role right, where there were like a bunch of individual contributors who were running. I was essentially overseeing 12 projects. And my job was basically like those 12 people, it was too many projects for me to be involved with any of them. Those 15 projects, maybe huge projects, you know, would report up to me. And then I would basically like report up to the next person, like to the CEO. And I, I hated that job when it was that way. I, mean, I love my time at Palantir. But half the time in these meetings, I'm like, okay, sounds good. I'm like, I just wasted their time briefing me, I guess, you know, some of it's my management style. There's a lot of weaknesses to this approach. You really, it's like, it's kind of risky, but I think it's kind of like high risk, high reward. Yeah, one of the goals of our conversations uh, on podcasts is to offer different approach, different opinions, like uh, you got to know it and then you can choose. Yeah, I don't recommend it for everyone. I think for a lot of people, it might not be right at all, but it works for me. I wanted to, to ask one more question to to sort of close off this conversation about using an M&A event as an accelerating force. And then we have a couple quick rapid fire questions for you, Melody. So this massive thing happened that was incredibly shifting for the new organization that came out of this. And it opened up a whole new set of capabilities uh, and a whole new pace of, of innovation for your organization. And the way you look and operate, it sounds entirely different than what it was pre this event. With all of this that, that happened, can you share a little bit more about like the end state, what that's now enabled with the stuff that you're working on now and the room that's opened up and now all of the exciting things that you get to now do because of leveraging this type of event. Can you give us a little bit more insight into what the impact has been around this? Sure. Immediately after the event, I think it was like, all right, we really had to focus on building the right capability in two years be able to do all the things we knew we wanted to be able to do. So I personally, for example, and I spoke about this at your conference last year, pivoted to streaming the Super Bowl in 4K. First time it had ever been done by anyone. And because we weren't worried about all these other things, we could put this very audacious goal in place, which was actually in one year, not even related to the TSA. We decided we were going to do this independently ahead of schedule. Let's stream on our own brand new infrastructure at this new quality level. And that was a super audacious goal, you know, to move from you know, zero concurrence basically to, you know, as I talked about last year, about 3 million concurrence, you know, on high quality definition. So that was a kind of like year one. It was like, all right, let's really start accelerating our delivery of these capabilities. Then, you know, we basically these projects kind of at that point were on pace, right? Like we basically set out what our goals were. We were all like just moving real fast to execute against them. I was one one, very burnt out, which is a very much a nights and weekends job, you know, for all sports events and everything. Jerry and I are casually in the live streaming business and we know how okay. the impact that yes. it can have on people. So, yeah, oh, exactly. And, you know, all sports games happen on Saturdays and Sundays and Thursday nights and Monday nights. And it's just personally, it was super fun, but also very burnout inducing. You know, anytime a screen would flicker, I would get texted by like five executives. And we began to think about the future. And it, basically, when you, when you choose not to fight one war, it really gives you the resources to fight another war, right? So by not going after the streaming wars, we had essentially amassed a $70 billion war chest to do something different, right? And part of what we kind of came to this hypothesis last year was like, we think Web3 is the future of media distribution. And so we founded this whole business. We immediately got $100 million. So we could start this new business and we could essentially, what I think, my hypothesis, you know, we'll see it's early days. It's like this leapfrogs what media distribution should be, you know? So now we still stream, we do live streaming. That's still core competency for us. It's very different than on-demand streaming technically. And so I'm still super proud and excited about everything that's happened with my old team on live streaming. Like they said, new quality capabilities every day that people adore. But we're not playing in this on-demand, you know, subscription business. So instead, if we're looking at Web3, it's like, what's the few, how does the next Simpsons get financed by the fans? We have a huge animation studio. I'm partnered up with our head of our animation studio and running this business. We have this huge creative team to be able to go after this. And it allows us to like really look into the future and play, make very big bets like in crypto that I think other media companies 
it's harder to do if you have not just legacy technology, but also associated with that is legacy content rights and distribution rights. Oh, well, I can't sell this piece of content directly to the fan because I entered into this carriage deal with this cable company and they have the rights in this country for four years, right? All that is gone. So we have a lot more freedom. Yeah, we're just looking at blockchain media distribution and what that's going to be and what that can enable. And I think that's entirely facilitated. I mean, it's not just me personally, my time and my boss's time and, you know, the team's time, but it's also like the budget and the headspace and the, the vision, like the fact that you know, the executive team trusted us, right? And we delivered on then the whole replatforming in two years thing. And so they're likely to like now also be like, all right, this one's kind of crazy and it might blow up all of our previous models for monetization, <laughs> but like we're willing to take like a bet and we've kind of, we've kind of built up some trust because of our execution. So it's super fun. I mean, it's like, I'm learning new technical stuff every single day. Yeah, I can tell you're really excited and happy. And what blows my mind again is the speed and also the timing, like the cutting edge, the forefront that, that you're at with this, because, you know, at the time of us recording this, you know, the Mass Singer NFT marketplace and the WWE NFT marketplace launched like three, four months ago in October, November. And only all of a sudden now with the time of the recording this in January, like everybody's talking about NFTs and everyone's launching a marketplace. And it, yeah, but you did this four months ago. So it, to me, it's the speed and the timing too. And the way you've been able to get into these new innovative spaces in such powerful ways, I think is so extraordinary. Awesome. Thanks, Patrick. Rapid fire questions. What are you reading or listening to right now? I'm listening to Conversations with Tyler, which I think is the best podcast by far out there. I always love it. And I'm reading Project Hail Mary, which is the new book by Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, you know, kind of a typical kind of near future event, <laughs> you know, uh, kind of descriptive in the title. Pretty good. You know, that's my current media diet. I love Andy Weir. I read Artemis and I, I thought that was a ton of fun. I was like, man, I really want to go visit the moon now. So that's great. <laughs> what tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? You know, maybe I'll think about Tyler, actually, podcast. I, how to ask good questions. And you guys are obviously experts at this. I think is like a very underrated skill. And I don't know if you've listened to Tyler, but he had this end of year review and he's a very distinct interview style. It's totally unlike anyone. It's super direct. There are no warmups, right? And he was reflecting on that in his end of year. And he had this great line. They said something like, I don't ask open-ended questions because like they invite blathery responses. And that to me was like almost like a little counterintuitive because in interviews with like candidates and stuff, I often open with like, how would you describe like your career? How do you describe kind of what you work on, what gets you up in, you know, in the day? And he's like super opposed to all those questions. Like he opens every interview with like, like I listened to an interview yesterday with him on a classical guitarist. He's like, why is Bach so difficult for classical guitarists to learn? That's literally the first words on the podcast. <laughs> okay, like we're right into it, right? And I actually, I'm kind of into that. So I'm experimenting with this. I don't know if it's a tool or methodology, but it's kind of like a, I think it's a tool, like asking good questions and asking very pointed questions versus open-ended ones. I'm I'm intrigued by, and I'm, I, my people I've been interviewing recently have been subject to this style, <laughs> for better or worse. I'm a big fan of that. My thesis right now on the podcasting landscape are some of the best ones are the ones that drop you right into the conversation as fast as possible. So those direct questions, I'm like, I'm going to listen. I'm going to, I'm going to learn. I think that's, a, that sounds like a really great point. Which I got Tyler Cowan because he's the absolute master. I love it. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? Well, can I mention Web3, even though it's obviously not unknown, <laughs> but I, I do think there's a mainstream application that's totally underappreciated right now. And it's so much more than JPEG collecting. It's so much more than like a speculative asset, you know, collection and appreciation. So I'm just really excited about kind of community activation as we were talking about earlier in this space and like what tokenization can unlock for you know, connecting IP holders or creators directly with their fans. And I'm um, just thinking about that in more authentic ways. I still think Web3 is a little underrated in actual projects out there. The community activation piece, I think, is it's such a powerful phenomenon. I mean, we were talking about WWE fans are are so passionate about that particular entertainment form. And the, to create like a fan-first environment for folks, I think, is, is so cool. So I'm really excited to see like the things that you all continue to do and experiment with Melody. Okay, so you talked about you love 
asking good questions or the, the art of how to ask a good question. What's your favorite or most powerful question that you like to ask or be asked? Gosh, I don't know. Well, I think in the spirit of pointed questions, like there is no single generic question. Every question is like actually based upon what that person is about, a detailed thing about what they're doing. So I think maybe I'll reject the premise of the question and say that there are the best kind of question actually is not generic, but respects kind of what that person knows and thus is like actually attuned to whatever they're about and is thoughtful and wouldn't be appropriate to ask another person. I I so love the overarching point there, rejecting the premise, but it's about being really <laughs> specific. But, but I think that's so true. Do you have a quote or a mantra that you want to leave us with that's really resonating with you right now? Uh, you know, maybe I'll harken back to our conversation about modes of working. I don't know, like, a, I don't know if it's a mantra, but I I always tell myself, like, be high, low, the middle is death. It's kind of a, like, succinct way that I remind myself of, you know, am I focusing on, like, the right things and or learning the right things? High, low, not the middle. Fantastic. Melody, this was so much fun. Thank you so much again for joining us and for sharing your story. To speak for Jerry a little bit, like this was just so exciting to be a part of this conversation with you again. And I've learned so much from you. Well, I appreciate everything you guys do to create a home for engineering leaders to come together. It's kind of a unique space and appreciate what you guys are up to. We can do that. It means that all the support like, from people like you. Here are a couple takeaways from our conversation with Melody Hildebrandt. Most mergers and acquisitions commonly include a two-year transfer of service agreement, or TSA, and are usually quite unstrategic. The unique opportunity of a time-bound TSA is that they can create a forcing function to turn your long-term tech wish list into an accelerated list of must-do initiatives. Fox accelerated their tech transformation from five to two years. How did they do that? They set a default decision in the agreement that all assets were Disney's, and then they had the right to claw back those assets as they aligned with their future vision of the technology organization. This allowed them to selectively choose the things that will accelerate their ability to deliver a future state architecture and then create team space to actually build the key priorities for their tech future. To create the basis of your technology organization's merger strategy, ask yourself questions like, what kind of team do we want for the future? What skills do we think we'll need to deliver and innovate at the pace we want? What are the key areas we want our leadership to be focusing on? And can we offload the work not aligned with that? When entering into an M&A negotiation, come from a position of mutual respect. Be honest with your current capabilities and what it will take to maintain them. And determine agreed-upon guiding principles like Fox's default. Here's how you can prepare for an early M&A or TSA strategy conversation with your team. Remember, non-technical executives are abstracted away from technical pain. Prepare to communicate the future vision of the technology organization and what your solution can enable for the company. You need to illustrate to them what is the reward for taking this risk, especially if the approach is non-intuitive. The opportunity for Fox that Melody highlighted was how Fox could invest more in resources that grow the business versus running it. To present a compelling strategy like that, you need to ground your insights in real data. So work with finance to understand where are the investments going and know what your teams are spending their time on. Finally, learn how the business leaders you're presenting to communicate, remove jargon, and speak using language that they resonate with and understand. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to our new podcast series, Engineering Founders. The leap from engineering leader to founder can be terrifying, filled with unknowns, and requires a completely different skill set. We're going to be diving into the stories, the pivotal moments, and critical insights from former engineering leaders turned founders that helped them take those early leaps to launch their own company. Check it out. You can also find the link for Engineering Founders in our show notes. Thanks for listening to the Engineering Leadership Podcast.